My name is Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor here, and um, I think this series is going to be uh, really helpful. I know it's uh, helped me as I've worked on it and processed it with some of the other pastors, and that's kind of our prayer for you as well, is that this you walk away um, with a greater appreciation of who God is, some questions answered, and then also um, I, I really do pray that this is really helpful. Uh, some of the questions that I've encountered when I was in school, I had a friend, and he was taking another class, and I wasn't in that class with him. And there was something presented, I don't know if it was in the curriculum or the teacher brought it up, but he, was, uh, he, he didn't grow up in a Christian family, didn't know very much about the Bible, but he was told about a story in the Bible where God destroys almost everybody on the face of the earth. So he was kind of shocked by this story, and he uh, came to me in the next class we had. He was like, Elliot, I, I just learned this about God. Did that really happen? Why would God do that? And then there was another time I was working at a restaurant. It was a great job, really fun. The the other people I worked with, we got along really well and had a good time working with one another. And um, one day we were setting up for an event. We were doing a special catering, and we were setting up for it. And uh, one of the people I worked with, as we are doing this, kind of sprung a question on me. I, I didn't see it coming. And they just said, Haley, why would God create hell and who goes there? And I was completely caught off guard. It was like a deer in the headlights. And I was like, okay, I've got to try to come up with some intelligible answer to this question. So I kind of fumbled through an answer. And then they kind of like looked at me in confusion, and then they said something to the effect of, well, if that's who God is, then I don't believe. And then there was another time where a friend, um, they attended a Christian wedding. And after the wedding, we were hanging out, you know, a few days later, and uh, they, they were telling me about the wedding and their experience, and they said what the pastor had said. And the pastor had kind of presented uh, what the Bible teaches about marriage. And so they, they relayed this to me, and then they said, that's crazy you don't believe that stuff, do you? And my guess is you've probably had some really similar experiences. You've had times when people have asked you questions, why would God do that? Why does God seem to behave in ways that are contrary to how we ourselves think is appropriate? Or why are there certain stories in the Bible that are so confusing or offensive? And my guess is you probably haven't just received questions like that, but you probably have questions like that yourself, questions about why God does what he does or, or why certain stuff's included in the Bible. I know I've got my own questions. And there's lots of different types of questions that we could have. Questions about science and evolution, questions about the source of the Bible. Is the Bible really from God, or is the Bible just made up by man? Questions about why does God care so much about divorce or who we have sex with? Questions about God's existence. Does he even exist? But a a lot of the questions that we get are questions that you could kind of boil down into the category of what, what is God like? What kind of God are we dealing with? Who is he? And and how does he relate to us? That's how a lot of the questions, we could boil them down into that category. And these are, these are really important questions, questions that need answers, questions that need good and thoughtful answers, not just like, oh, you're not supposed to ask that, but time needs to be taken to kind of unpack and discover what's really going on, who is God. And so what we'll do is we'll go to the Bible and try to get answers, either for ourselves or for the people in our lives who are asking these questions. But if you've done this and you've gone to the Bible and you've started reading, what you find is a lot of times you'll walk away with more questions than you started with. Because as you go and you read the Bible, you'll find passionate stories about romantic love and the hatred that follows betrayal. You'll find gut-wrenching stories that'll just turn your stomach that detail rape and dismemberment. You find kind of frank, matter-of-fact presentations of human trafficking. You find stories that celebrate military victory and then tell of the bloody slaughters of entire nations. There's stories about spoiled brats like Samson or, 
or royalty, people like Solomon, people who are princes, who they have everything, and then they're given supernatural gifts, where at the same time, there are some really good people, people like Job, and they have everything taken away from them. And then there's stories that detail the whole sacrifices thing, and what, what in the world's going on with that? And as you read the Bible, you're going to find stories of chaos and destruction, and often it appears that God is behind it. Even at times, he's the one commanding the behavior that we read about, and we say, well, that's just wrong. So then the question is, well, what kind of God do we have in our hands? Is he really a good and loving God? And some people, they've sat down with these questions, and they've started to read the Bible, and they've encountered these passages, and they've decided to reject the God of the Bible, or at least what they think they know about him. They reject their ideas about God. One is uh, atheist Richard Dawkins, who's a pretty prominent, outspoken person when it comes to God. And he says in one of his books, this is what he says, I want to read you a quote. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow. I had to look up some of those words because I didn't even know what they meant. But I can tell you it's not a pretty positive picture of God. But is he right? Is this who God is? I mean, again, because when we sit down and we read it, we, there are stories where God calls for the, be- for the death penalty for stuff that we don't even think is bad. And there are stories where God commands the destruction of entire nations, entire groups of people. You, you do find in detail all the stuff about sacrifices in there. It's all in there. I mean, there's stories that when we read it, we sit there and we say, how is this acceptable behavior when we wouldn't even imagine doing this ourselves? How is this right? So the question that we're asking in this series is what kind of God do we find in the Bible? Who is this God? Is he the God as Richard Dawkins presents him? You know, is he this this evil being who should be rejected and we should want nothing to do with? Or is he, a, is he a good and loving God who's worthy of our worship? And so that's what we're going to be answering. Today, as we begin this, we're going to start with an overview. We're going to kind of get a big picture. We're going to get our bearings on what's going on. And we're going to look at kind of a big picture of the Bible. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to dive in in more detail. And we're going to look at the passages that have to do with punishment, these severe punishments that make our stomach turn. We're going to look at the the passages that have to do with slaughter, slaughters of entire groups of people. And then we're going to wrap it up with a look at sacrifices. What in the world's going on with all the sacrifices? Now this morning, before we start by, uh, before we get into the passages that have to do with some of those bigger questions, I want to ask two kind of fundamental foundational questions. And these two questions we're going to answer this morning, we're going to look at and then answer these are going to kind of, kind of, kind of give us a, a context for what's going on and how is it that we can approach these difficult questions that we have about the Bible and about God and come to some good answers. So the first question that we're going to ask is, do we have two pictures of God? Do we have two pictures of God in the Bible? Again, this, this is something that we've got to start with context for if we're going to answer this. And the context is the Bible is divided into two sections. You've got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament. The Old Testament deals with the nation and the people of Israel, and then the New Testament deals with Jesus and the early church. And because a lot of the difficult passages are found in the Old Testament, some people have concluded that, well, we must have two gods on our hands. 
We must have a God of wrath and justice, and then we've got Jesus in the New Testament. Kind of a God who's angry and vindictive, and he's got all these commands and rules, and he's strict and mean. And then in the New Testament, you find a God of love and grace and mercy. And so a lot of people think, okay, well, so we've got these two different pictures of God's. We've got to understand what a testament is if we're going to come to a conclusion on do we have two pictures. And a testament, because the Bible is divided into two testaments, a testament is an agreement or a covenant. It's an agreement or a covenant. It, it kind of sets the boundaries or defines the relationship between two parties. That's what a testament is. When, when my wife and I, Allie, when we got married, we entered into an agreement with one another. And in our wedding ceremony, you guys have all kind of heard the kind of the traditional vows and the traditional commitments that you take. And so the minister, as he was performing the wedding, what he said to me was he said, do you, Elliot, do you promise to take Allie to be your wife, to love her, to comfort her, honor and keep her for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful only to her for as long as you both shall live. Now, we've all heard that. But what that is, is that's an agreement. That's a covenant that my wife, Allie, and I entered into. So I responded to that, and I said, yes, I agree to that. And then the same thing was asked of her, a series of questions that then she agreed to. That, that was the covenant of the agreement. So in the Bible, what you find is you find the same thing going on in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, you find the agreement for the relationship before Christ came. The Old Testament gives the kind of the overview of the covenant. Before Christ came, this is what it looks like for men and women to be in a relationship with God before Christ. That's what you find in the Old Testament. As you read through it, it starts with kind of this presentation of this is the world God created and this is his original plan and this is why everything got so messed up. And then after everything gets so messed up, God comes and he starts to define the relationship and he says, okay, this is what it's going to look like if you're going to follow me. And then he makes promises and he says, okay, through the people who choose to follow me, I'm eventually going to bring salvation to the whole earth. And as you read more and more of the story, you discover that God's eventual plan of bringing salvation would be to send the Messiah. And the Messiah would be God coming, God in flesh coming to save the world. So in the Old Testament, as you read that covenant and that agreement, what you find is the covenant is pointing to the future arrival of Christ. So as you're going through it and you're in this wondering what's going on, you've got to start with this context. Okay, so the Old Testament is the agreement for the relationship, and it's pointing to the future arrival of Christ. The New Testament, on the other hand, is the agreement for the relationship after the coming of Christ. So the New Testament is God's, God saying, okay, this is the covenant. This is what it's going to look like for me to be in a relationship with men and women after Christ has come. And so even though humanity had made a terrible mess of creation, God had this plan to restore it. And he's going to restore it by sending the Messiah. And so what you find in the Old Testament is all through the Old Testament, the writers, they're pointing to this this promise is going to be fulfilled. The Messiah is eventually going to come. So they're giving these, these road signs and these pointers and saying this is eventually going to happen. And then in the New Testament, as God says, okay, now this is the agreement you're entering into now that Christ has come, you find the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament writers were pointing to. They were saying this is going to happen, and then Jesus shows up, Christ shows up, and he fulfills what they were saying. So the New Testament doesn't replace the Old Covenant. It fulfilled it. So one way to think of this is instead of just saying, okay, you've got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament, one way to think of it is you have the first agreement, because a testament is a covenant or an agreement, you have the first agreement, and then you have the final agreement. Christ showed up. In the Old Testament, God is preparing a people. Christ shows up in the New Testament, and what was being prepared for is now fulfilled. 
So we have a first and then we have a final. So that kind of lays the groundwork and gives us somewhat of an understanding of what's going on. But again, the question is, so when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, do you get two opposing pictures of God? And it's really common for people to say this. I mean, you, you'll hear this all over the place. You'll hear, oh, yeah, well, but the, but the God of the Old Testament, he's, a, he's vindictive, and he's a God of wrath, and he's a God of war. And then in the New Testament, you've got, you've got Jesus. And we all know that Jesus is loving, and he's kind, and he's generous, and he's forgiving. So they think, okay, you've got these two pictures. And some people even go as far as to say that, you know, we shouldn't even read the Old Testament anymore. We should ignore it, and we should write it off because we've got these two opposed pictures, and the Old Testament is so offensive that we should just ignore what's going on in it. But what I found interesting in my own experience is if I, as I have had questions, as I've encountered difficult passages, and instead of just kind of glossing over them and ignoring them and saying, okay, how can I get answers to these questions? Why in the world is this in there? As I've sought out answers, as I've as I've explored the bigger context of more than just what I'm reading, but how does this fit in the bigger picture of what's going on in the Bible, as I've started to understand cultures and languages and all this other stuff, I've increasingly walked away amazed at how loving and patient and kind and forgiving the God of the Old Testament is. I don't walk away with this sense of, oh, there's two pictures, but I walk away with the sense of, oh, God is equally as forgiving and gracious and kind in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. Just an example, I want to point out something in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, it's about Jonah. God comes to this man named Jonah, and he says, Jonah's a prophet. He says, hey, I want you to go to uh, the nation of Assyria, and I want you to go to this specific city called Nineveh, and I want you to tell the Assyrians about me and tell them if they'll turn from their wickedness and they repent, that I'll forgive them. So Jonah doesn't really like this because the Assyrians are Israel's enemies, and he doesn't want to go. But eventually, he ends up going. And when he goes, he relays this message to them, and they, shockingly, they decide to repent. They turn back to God. And what's really interesting when we read the story is how Jonah responds to them repenting. This is what it says in Jonah chapter 4. It says, he, Jonah, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was sitting at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He tried to get out of what God wanted him to do. And he says this, he says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. If you go back and you study about the Assyrians and you study what was going on in the city of Nineveh, you realize these people, these people really were evil. I mean, even with our own ideas about what is right and wrong in our modern culture, we would have looked at this group of people and we would say, that is an evil group of people. What they're doing is wicked and something needs to be done. Even with our own standards, but again and again, as you read through the story, God is, he's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's a God of mercy. He wants people to be forgiven. He wants people to be purified. So much so that even the people that follow him, like Jonah, they get frustrated with him. They're the ones saying, hey, God, you need to be more, you need to do more justice. You need to act more swiftly. But God's saying, no, I'm, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to extend an opportunity for them to return and come to me. You find this pattern over and over again in the Old Testament. So again, the question is, do you find two pictures of God, an Old Testament picture and then a New Testament picture? And the answer is simple, no. There's a single picture and there's unity in the painting. This is what you find as you study through the story. There isn't a difference between how the Old Testament and the New Testament present God. When Jesus arrives in the New Testament, when he shows up, you see him reflect the character of God the Father, the one who's presented in the Old Testament. 
And what you discover as you compare the two is Jesus is no more loving than his father, and the father is no more judging than Jesus. That is so important to understand. As you compare the stories and you match it up and you really take the time to see what's going on, again, you realize that Jesus is no more loving than his father, and the father is no more judging than Jesus. You get the same picture. There are not two pictures. In the Old Testament, in spite of people's sin, rebellion, and wickedness, God, like Jonah said, God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's a God who relents from sending calamity. So now the question is, okay, well, if there's, if there's one picture, then why are there so many competing ideas about God? I and mean, why do you hear so many different things about, well, God is this or God is that? And, you know, why are people so set on presenting this idea that there are two separate ideas of God? And the answer is pretty simple. I mean, we, we kind of have the freedom to present whatever idea we want to present. It doesn't have to be true. We, we have the, pres- the freedom to present, you know, whatever we want to present. And we can do this with anything in life. We can kind of pick and choose and highlight certain things and, and project an image that it might not be accurate, but we can project whatever we want to project. I mean, just for an example, let's think of like a classic Disney movie. Let's think of like a classic princess one, you know, maybe one of the newer ones, maybe one with a song that all the girls love and they sing all the time and get stuck in your head as a parent, you know, maybe like Frozen, maybe like that one. I'm not going to sing the song, but let's, let's say you took the movie Frozen, Okay. And let's say that you highlighted certain plot lines and you manipulated the story and you took stuff out of context. What could you, what could you make that story into? What could you make that look like? What, let's check out what you could do with the story Frozen if you manipulated it. <laughs> now, that's not the real movie. Those are real scenes from the movie, real clips, real audio. But we all know that that's not the real movie. So could people be doing this with the God of the Bible? Could they be manipulating it and just presenting certain things, taking stuff out of context, changing the order around and making him look like something that he's not? Yeah, people could do this. I mean, we're free to present whatever picture we want. That doesn't make it accurate. And actually, people on both sides do this. It's not just people that are opposed to God who do this. Actually, as Christians, we'll do this as well. We'll kind of pick and choose and just highlight certain things and talk about what we agree with, but then we'll kind of, we'll ignore and we'll overlook and we'll kind of push aside the stuff that makes us uncomfortable or that we don't like or that challenges us or that might not be popular in culture. So it's both sides that do this. It's not just people that oppose God, but Christians do this as well. So then this leads us to the question of, okay, so if there's, if there's not two pictures, there's just one picture and it's united throughout the entire Bible, then the picture is, okay, well, what is the picture of God? What's the picture that we find as we read through the Bible? Who, who is this God? What is he like? And we've got to answer this question because before we get to those passages that have to do with the destruction of nations or those hard-to-stomach punishments or any of that other stuff, before we get to that and address that, we've got to come to an understanding, okay, what is God's character? That is the foundation for answering these bigger questions. Isaiah chapter 6 gives us an informative glimpse of God's character helps us answer this question. This is what it says in Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So the first part to the answer of what kind of God do we find in the Bible, what's the picture, is God is holy. This is the first part of the answer to the question. We're dealing with a God who is holy. Notice what the angels are saying to one another. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. In Hebrew, the language this was written in, repetition is a literary device used for emphasis. So what you would do is if something was, you know, if you just wanted to state a fact, you would just say it one time. You know, if you wanted, you know, to give some emphasis to it, well, then maybe you could say it two times, saying that, okay, well, you could compare this to anything else, but it's greater than anything. So if you said, you know, for example, like this was, you know, one of the rainier winters I've experienced since I've lived in Southern California, I could say, okay, well, it was a wet winter. And then everybody knows, oh, okay, well, that's a statement of fact. It rained a lot. But if I said it was a wet, wet winter, then I'm saying that it was the wettest winter of every wet winter that we've ever had. But if I said that it was a wet, wet, wet winter in Hebrew, it sounds funny to us, but what I'm saying is there was no winter in the history of humanity anywhere on the face of the earth that came close to how wet it was in Southern California for this winter. So in Hebrew, when he says, holy, 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 when the angels say that, what they're saying is, they say it just one time, and it's a statement of fact, God is holy. Holy times holy, they're saying that he's the holiest of everything that's holy. But then they say it three times, holy times holy times holy, and suddenly they've said he's in a completely different category. Nothing comes close. There is no fathomable comparison to how holy God is. And that's what these angels who are flying around him are, are crying. They're crying, holy, holy, holy. And the Bible presents God's holiness really in two ways. It presents it that God is he's separate from and above all of creation. I mean, just in this passage, there's a lot of cues that point to this. One is God is seated on a throne. A throne is significant because that's the place that indicates power or control. And he's sitting on it because there's certainty about who's in control. If a, if a nation was at war or at battle, the king would be up from his throne and he would be pacing back and forth. He was curious and anxious to know what the outcome of the war would be. But when a king is sitting in his throne, it's indicating he's in complete control. There's no question as to what the outcome is going to be. The king is secure in his throne. He's in control. Christ, God is seated on the throne. That's the image that Isaiah sees. And then he sees these seraphim. These seraphim are angels. The word translates into burning ones. So they're these angels that are flying around. They've got six wings and their bodies are emitting light. I mean, something that if you and I looked at them, we would have to squint because they're so bright. They're the burning ones. But what they're doing with their, their wings, with two of their wings, they're covering their eyes. And they're doing that to indicate the fact that, that they're in the presence of this holy God. And God is so holy and so glorious, so perfect and so pure that they've got to cover their eyes. They can't even look at him because he's so amazing and so superior to who they are. And then with two of their wings, they're covering their feet. And their feet show that they're created beings. And so they're in the presence of the creator. And because they're in the presence of the creator who created and owns everything, they're covering their feet, acknowledging who he is, and they understand their place before him. So just as you look at the details from this passage, you realize that, okay, God is in the throne. He, there's, there's no question about who's in control. He is infinitely more glorious than anything else he's created. Even stuff we would look at and say, wow, those, those angels, they're amazing. That's the most impressive thing I've ever seen. Even they cower in the, in the presence of God because he's so superior. And he's the creator of everything. So first thing we identify about God's holiness is he is separate from and above all creation. 
But another thing about God's holiness is he isn't just separate from and above all creation, but God is actually moral perfection. And this is really, really important for us to understand. God's moral perfection, everything he does is pure and perfect and without sin. This is his, this is his character. At his very nature, he is a morally perfect being. Now, sometimes what we'll do is we'll wrongly think that God is just kind of a better version than us. You know, kind of like God, God's the upgrade. You know, we're kind of the base level, kind of, you know, the, the entry model, but God's got all the bells and whistles. He's just a better version of us. So, so maybe what we'll think is we'll think, okay, well, on the moral scale, how it works is, you know, if we're kind of the middle of the road, just kind of average when it comes to morals and knowing what's right and wrong and living a, a good life, if we're just kind of in the middle of the road, we'll, we'll kind of wrongly think, oh, well, well, God's just further along. He's just a lot better at it than we are. You know, it's kind of like this friend that I had in college. I had a friend in a calculus class, and he would sleep through class. You know, we'd get there. It's early in the morning, one of those, like, weed-out classes. You know, they have you do calculus at 7.30 in the morning, which is really just a way of setting a kid up for failure. So we'd go to this class, and my friend, you know, he's tired, and he just puts his head down and sleeps through the class. And I'm sitting there paying attention to what the professor's writing on the board. You know, he's explaining this is a new equation we're going to learn. Here's the algorithm we're going to use. This is how we're going to solve it. So he's writing it all out and explaining it step by step. And I'm sitting there, and I'm taking good notes and trying to follow along with what he's saying. And my friend, usually around the end of the class, you know, he's laying there, he'll kind of sit up, he'll kind of, you know, get his bearings, he'd maybe stretch, let out a little yawn, and he'd look at the board for a minute, then he'd look over at my notes, and then he'd look back up at the board, and he'd ask for my pen, because he never came prepared for class, he'd ask for my pen, he'd write a number down at the top of the page, and then he'd go back to sleep. <laughs> the professor hadn't even finished explaining the equation. He hadn't even taught us the material, and my friend writes down the, top, the, the right answer to the, to the equation on the top of the page and goes back to sleep. It was so annoying. I mean, I was trying so hard. That's the only class in college I had to drop. I could not figure out. I'm trying so hard to understand it. And he's not even trying. He just gets it right. And so sometimes we'll kind of think, oh, well, well maybe God's like that. Maybe when it comes to morals, you know, if we're going to get a C- minus on the test, maybe it just means that God's going to get an A+. Plus. But, but that's not an, under, an accurate understanding of what's going on. God's not just better at morals. He's the foundation. Who he is is the line between right and wrong. He's not just going to do better on the moral test. No, he's the one that his very being, his nature is moral perfection. He's the foundation for it. Our understanding of it is all based on who he is. He is moral perfection. That is so important for us to understand. And so when the angels who are surrounding God, what they're saying is holy, holy, holy. They're saying he is separate from and above all creation and he is, a, he is moral perfection. Nothing even comes close. He is the foundation for what is right and wrong. So notice Isaiah's response. The very next thing it says, Isaiah responds. What Isaiah says is so informative. It says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. The word woe, whenever a prophet would speak blessing on people, whenever they had good news, they would start with the word blessed. They would say, you know, that's why Jesus, when he comes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, starting with a blessing. Hey, this is good news. But whenever a, whenever a prophet would show up and it was bad news, they would start with the word woe. They would say, woe to you. Woe to you, Pharisees. So what, what Isaiah says here, he says, woe to me. He's saying, he's in God's presence and he's saying, this is bad news for me. He, he actually pronounces judgment on himself. Judgment to me. I stand condemned. I'm a dead man, is what he says. 
He says, I'm ruined. The idea of being ruined in Hebrew is to be without a foundation. You know, when, when I was growing up, I used to, my family and I would go on vacation to this place, and it had one of those kind of floating staircases, and it had a large gap underneath. And I remember as a little kid, like four and five years old, I would always freak out walking up that staircase because I always thought that I would fall through. And I would then have these nightmares where I would be walking up the staircase, and suddenly the staircase would fall apart beneath me, and then I would just start falling. And I would wake up just screaming as a little kid, freaking out. Well, that's kind of what happens to Isaiah. He realizes, I have no foundation. I mean, in life, if you realize you're, you're not standing on anything, everything that you thought was solid in life suddenly comes apart, you start freaking out. You come undone. That's what Isaiah is saying when he says, I'm ruined. He is freaking out because he's in the presence of this holy God. He says, I stand condemned. I'm a dead man, and I'm freaking out. And then the next thing he says, he reveals why he has this reaction. He reveals his specific conviction. He says this, he says, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, for Isaiah, what, what God's presence showed him is just how sinful he was. You know, Jesus is the one who, he explained to us the connection between our words and what, what goes on in our heart. He says the mouth speaks from what's inside of the heart. Almost like our tongue is kind of like this soup ladle, and with our tongue, we're reaching down into our heart and kind of scooping up whatever's in there and then bringing it out. Jesus is the one that explained that. Isaiah knew this. So what does he point to? The evidence of how sinful he is is what comes out of his mouth. He says, I, I'm unholy in the presence of this holy God, and for proof, I've just got to look at what comes out of my mouth. And it's actually the same with you and me. I mean, we have sinful hearts, and it shows up in what comes out of our mouths. And it's not just in in words that we know we shouldn't say or jokes that we shouldn't tell, but really at the very root of it, inside of our hearts, we're in rebellion to God. We think we know better than God, and that shows up in what comes out of our mouths. So we judge God for what he does, thinking that, okay, well, if we were in control, we wouldn't do those things. The world wouldn't be the way that it is if we were in control. Or we grumble and complain about God, thinking that, oh, well, if we had the authority, we would do a better job. We're better than God. That's why we would grumble and complain about him. We voice our opinions about right and wrong, thinking we know better. And then we take action based on our ideas about right and wrong, and we just completely ignore what he's already clearly said on the subject. Because again, in our hearts, well, we think we know better than God. Our opinion holds more weight than what he's said is the final word on the topic. With our words, we compare ourselves with other people, and we act like we're better on the moral scale. Or we, we look in the mirror and we spend all this time convincing ourselves that we're just fine and there's nothing wrong with us. When just like Isaiah, one look up at the holy God who created everything and is in control of everything would reveal to us that we're not okay. And this is what happened to Isaiah. All these things that come out of our mouths, they reveal that we think we know better than God. They reveal that in our hearts, we're, we're actually in rebellion against God. And something important to understand about Isaiah, Isaiah, as you go and you read about him and read what other people said about him, you realize he was the most upright man in his generation. I mean, he's a, he's a prophet. So everybody's looking at him as this kind of this great spiritual leader, this voice from God. And even the other prophets would look at him and say, man, he is he's the highest standard of morals. He's the holiest guy we know. You know, if you want an example of how to live, look at Isaiah. Isaiah is the example of how to live and follow God. He's He's the cream of the crop. He's the top one. Everybody would look at him and applaud. But what happens to Isaiah when he shows up in God's holy presence? 
he falls apart. And in essence, what he says when he says, woe to me, I'm ruined, he says, I'm a rebel standing in the presence of the holy God that I rebelled against. So he says, woe to me, judgment to me, I'm ruined. I have no foundation to stand on. I have no rights. I have no reason to be here. He falls apart. But thankfully, the story doesn't stop there. There's more to the story. There's more to the picture of who God is. It says this in verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The second part of the answer to what kind of God do we find in the Bible, what's the picture? Is First of all, God is holy. But second of all, God is also merciful. God's merciful. He doesn't destroy Isaiah. Instead of destroying him, he provides a way for Isaiah to be purified. A way for, just like it says in this passage, says for a way for his guilt to be taken away, for his sin to be atoned for, a way for the rebellion that Isaiah knew was true about himself, a way for that rebellion to be forgiven. See, this holy God who's righteous and just is also a God of love and grace and mercy a God who is patient and kind and wants to forgive. And just like God had mercy on Isaiah and doesn't bring about swift justice for what Isaiah had done, God, all through the Old Testament, the Old Testament writers are continuously pointing that God eventually will send the Messiah who would offer salvation, offer purification to the whole world. They're pointing to the fact that God is merciful and he has a plan and he's going to come through with the plan. And that's the same mercy and purification that you and I look to, to what Christ has already done. But something important to realize about mercy when we talk about God being merciful, mercy begins as a delay and then ends with us accepting or rejecting. This is so important. Mercy begins as a delay and then ends with either our acceptance or our rejection. Because God is merciful, what he does, instead of there just being swift justice and it being immediate, a lightning bolt from heaven, what God does is he will delay justice. I mean, the fact that we're all here and we're breathing is evidence of God's mercy and his love. He delays justice. But just because he delays justice doesn't mean he's going to override our free will and make us choose. So he's going to delay the consequences, but he's not just going to come in and say, you know, I know that you really don't want to accept my mercy, but I'm going to force you to do it. He gives us the, the, the freedom to choose, but there's a window of time to choose, and that, that window has an expiration date on it. It will eventually run out, but you and I get to choose. It's what we want. I mean, if, if we want to be the kings and queens of our lives and rule it and you know, not take God seriously and ignore what he said on specific topics and just kind of do what we want to do because we know better, you know, we have the freedom to do that. But if we're eventually going to experience his justice or be covered by his mercy, that's ultimately your and my choice. And that's a choice that we get to make now. That's what Isaiah chose. Isaiah chose to accept his mercy. And so Isaiah was purified. And that's the point. This holy God, this picture of God that we find all through the Bible is that, yes, God is holy. He is absolute moral perfection. And in his presence, we don't have a chance. But at the same time, he's also a God of mercy. And he extends that mercy. So do we have two pictures of God? No. There's one picture of God, and it's a unified picture all through the Bible. 
It's not a God of wrath and justice and anger and war in the Old Testament and then a God of love and mercy in the New Testament. It's one unified picture. And the picture is God is holy and then God is also merciful. That's the picture that we find. Now, just because that's the picture that we find, does that answer all of our questions? That answer the questions about, well, why would God command the death penalty in this situation? Or does that answer questions, well, why would God, why would God destroy almost everyone on the face of the earth in this, this instance? Or why would, he, why would he annihilate this nation and this other? Or, or why the whole sacrifices thing? And why does it have to be blood? No, that doesn't answer all of our questions. But understanding his character, getting that as the foundation and the starting point that we're dealing with a holy God who's also merciful, that, that gives us a chance to then address some of these more difficult passages and these more difficult questions and actually come away with thoughtful, good answers. So the point is, there's more questions, and we've got to get there, and we will get there, but we start with the foundation. The foundation is there's one picture of God, and God is holy, and God is merciful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you don't leave us in the dark on who you are, but that you reveal it through your word. And then I also thank you for the fact that you don't change, that you are the same. And because of that, we can know what's right and wrong and we don't have to guess. And I thank you for the fact that you're also merciful. And even though there's no way that we can keep the standard or live up to what we were created to be because of sin, God, you are merciful and you extend forgiveness. So Father, I I pray as we move on from here, I pray that we would remember the fact that you are a holy God. And like the angels sing, you are holy, holy, holy. And then you also offer a way for our guilt to be forgiven and our sin to be atoned for. So I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.